Hello and welcome to a new episode of our podcast Macro Monthly. My name is Hans Tegenman and with me are investment strategist Maritza Cabezas and Jori de Wilde. Together we discuss current economic topics and political developments and how they relate to sustainability. This time we will as always start with the macroeconomic environment. Inflation, interest rates, growth perspectives, maybe a little bit corona, of course the war in Ukraine. And we will zoom especially in into labor markets. Unemployment is extremely low, wages increase, but still it is all not enough. And of course we will have our standard items about the data of the month and the frustration of the month. Welcome, Yuri, Maritza. How are you doing, Yuri? Well, actually I'm a bit under the weather, uh, Hans, as you know. Yeah. yeah, since last week. So it's, uh, it isn't Corona, but uh, at the moment I'm feeling a bit better than uh, yesterday already. So Okay, so I'm very happy that you're here because we also at Twilers have labor shortages. Yeah. Because if you couldn't make it, we have to ask another employee to come in. Maritza, anything that you saw in terms of personal experience related to the economy or something? Well, I was in a meeting uh, yesterday, Hans, and... Uh, we were talking about specific fintech company and actually one of the comments that was made by the CFO from the company was that he is struggling with labor shortages. And I can imagine that because as you know, fintech, when COVID came, yeah, it was very helpful and many fintech companies could grow quite fast. And one of the conditions that you need to be able to grow is actually skilled labor, highly skilled labor in the IT segment. And so they're they're wrestling with that. And then I thought, you know, this is a sector constraint for a good company. And this can be extended to the broader labor market. So yeah. I don't know how you see that. Of course, in the, in the Netherlands, but I think in most Western European countries, or also in the US, we see a lot of labor market shortages and also from, from a Personal experience, uh, maybe I said it before in this podcast, but my bathroom, we try to plan it for ages and in the end it will be delivered next year. So that's that's one example. And, and that's, so it's not only about skilled labor, it's about in general about labor. I went to Terrace last week and although the girl did the best she could, she was clearly inexperienced. So that's also what you see now happening. So you see it on, on multiple fronts, the labor market tightness coming in. Yeah, that's true. That's that's also what I noticed a couple of weeks ago. My sister bought a house actually close to the city center of Haarlem where a couple of things that uh, were actually remarkable. First thing is that she did a bid that was very close to the asking price and it all of a sudden got accepted. <laughs> then she and her boyfriend actually started to doubt whether they wanted to buy the house and then the offering party actually <laughs> lowered the price so she could even buy it for less so in the end they did uh, decide to buy it but it was a very old house so when, what she experienced then was that she needed a contractor but that was very difficult it was very hard to find one so here you could see the, of course the, the labor shortages yeah. and it was also very pricey so it was very difficult to to buy uh, construction materials for a reasonable price. So you yeah. could also see that the supply shortages was really extreme at the moment. Yeah, that's also what we had to do when we bought our bathroom. We had to sign a contract. And if the price increases more than 10% for the materials, we have to pay extra. So that's really of this time, I think. But let's take it a little bit higher. I think you said two interesting things, Yuri. One is about the housing market, because we have 
at least in the Netherlands, doubled the long-term interest rate at the moment. Mm-hmm. And what you see in a lot of countries that housing market prices are not increasing at least anymore. And that's, I think, interesting looking forward. How will that develop? So interest rates and that kind of stuff. What we have seen, of course, over the last uh, few months is that we've seen a sharp increase in, in interest rates. At the same time, we've seen a sharp fall in, uh, in the financial markets, in the equity markets. What we could expect is that we would see some more slowing of the growth in housing prices because we know that they are still growing, but to a lesser extent. So looking forward, because interest rates will probably continue to rise for uh, mortgages, this will mean that there will be some further slowing in the housing market as well which is a further sign that the economy is is slowly transforming into a less optimal economy yeah. compared to a year ago. Yeah, but if we take that also to emerging markets, so we have higher interest rates, we see a lot of things moving in the economy. And Maritza, you did just for our financial risk committee, the complete exercise of all the countries we're invested in and, and what the risks are. Did you see also new risks from that perspective coming in? Well, I think that the problem is, Hans, that we had already quite some risks piling up given COVID, given that the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the U.S., would also start tightening this year. And a lot of emerging economies already started last year their tightening in preparation for a Fed rate hike. And that brings some uncertainty. So on top of all these factors, then, of course, you have the war in Ukraine. And this all piles up and... I guess the risks have increased in my view. Obviously, they're concentrated more in certain regions than in others. And there's uh, some discrimination with commodity exporters and commodity importers. But I think that the outlook, at least for our base scenario that we already published in November, still holds. And it is not a very positive one in the sense that all these uh, risks are mounting and there is not, let's say, uh, some positive factor that could yeah, sort of balance the risks. Maritza, if you look to our scenarios that we forecasted, we did see over the last few weeks that there were some significant downgrades in China as well. So looking at the the global forecast, don't you think maybe it could be even a bit worse compared to our base scenario from a few months ago? As the growth data uh, comes in, we saw, for example, I think where everybody's looking at is at China. China had quite a strong first quarter, stronger than expected. And uh, now there's a lot of uncertainty because the April data for China was very weak. And across the board, if you look at the proxies for consumption, retail sales, industrial production, everything was weak. They, they do expect a negative growth on a quarterly basis for on, the second on, quarter. Uh, yeah, right? in the second quarter. But yeah. the state council came out today with a whole package of measures, fiscal measures, measures also to improve the demand uh, labor market. And we still have to see how that works out. There's going to be even tax relief included. So the thing is with... Chinese authorities, that they can take the measures rather rapidly and they know how to fine tune and they know how to work with the banking system. So this quarter will not be definitely a strong quarter for China. And uh, yeah, growth would be probably much lower than we had forecasted. That is a fact, but we need to see how all these measures filter through the economy eventually. And Yuri, like you said, we we made three scenarios, I think in March, was it? Mm -hmm. Um, And if you see the global economy and especially developed economies, 
how are they faring against those scenarios? Did we predict anything right? <laughs> I think I think we did actually. What you do see a lot now is talk about growth downgrades. But if you look at the most recent data for April, it's actually, or for May even, it's not that bad. If yeah. you look at the Eurozone, for instance, it's holding up fairly well given all the issues that it's facing. So we also don't have to be overly pessimistic at the moment. I still think we didn't predict a recession for each of the major advanced economies. I still think that holds. But it depends on a lot of details and an escalation of the war, continued lockdowns in, uh, in China, other issues that emerge could still make that we turn into a recession. But at the moment, it's holding up yep. fairly well. Maybe a last question on, on this part, because what we've seen on, on the equity markets is that they really went down or all markets went down. Mm-hmm. Did you predict that? Of course, you did not exactly. <laughs> no. But how do you see those developments with regard to what you just said, that the economy is, is holding up relatively well? Markets think otherwise. So, th- so the market is already basically pricing in a recession or at least yeah. a higher chance for a recession. What you could see from the current data is maybe for the moment that is overdone. At the same time, if we look at the central bank policies that are being implemented, we do know that we're uh, entering uh, a more yeah, difficult territory, lots of tightening. And that means that in the longer term, this will have an effect on economic activity. So I think the market is already discounting this, but still a lot of negative data can come uh, further ahead. So we did predict that markets would uh, go down because we think valuations are, are much too high. Do I think we are at the bottom? No, I don't think so yet. I think we can have a partial bounce, but later in the year, more negative data will follow and this will uh, probably result in more uh, downward sentiment. So the the positive thing that I can take out of this is that we were more or less correct in our estimates. Mm -hmm. And the negative thing that I can take out of it is that valuations will go down. And the last positive thing that I also can take from Maritza, that it is not so bad as some people expect. Also not from China, also not from developed markets. So you think both a global recession is far away. I think what we have to be aware of is that policymakers are always reacting to the incoming data. Mm-hmm. And that is the case of China. I think, uh, yeah, no one can deny that April's data was weak. So that makes the authorities more proactive. The same thing is going for the Fed. The Fed knows that it will cause pain, but they're very eager to communicate exactly how that will play out. So right now, uh, the ball is on the court of policymakers and how they can weather, let's say, the environment. Yeah, maybe I, I would try to run it off the door. To our listeners, should they worry about the economy? That's what they want to hear. (laughs) I think in the near term, uh, things are better than uh, we have feared, uh, looking at the war and everything that has been going on. In the longer term, uh, we are in a a downward uh, spiral. So in the longer term, I think uh, the worst is yet to come. So be happy in the near term and be... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fearful of the longer term. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I, I would say. I, I would say that it's more nuanced in emerging markets, that you have the strong economies that have buffers, but you have low-income countries that really are biting the bullet now. So now you hear, listeners, that we have the problem of economists coming together and are nuanced, having different opinions, and in the end, probably they say next month almost the same, and they say, yes, I was right. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> let's listen next month. My frustration of this month, yeah, I have several frustrations. The European Commission, 
they made a proposal, a big package on the energy transition with some good stuff and some really good stuff trying to uh, increase the speed of the energy transition, going to renewables, investing in it, trying to get rid of the dependencies on fossil fuels, especially from Russia, some replacement to other dependencies from Qatar and whatever. That's a mild frustration, but my biggest frustration is part of how they want to pay with it is by selling new carbon rights. So 20 billion putting in just only to increase the speed of the energy transition and in that way selling part of our future for now. I think that's a very bad idea. That's a very simple, easy frustration and everybody thinks it's okay. Also, it, it links to a discussion on, yeah, we have to be go more into coal because we cannot afford it. And in the end, it means only one thing. We aggravate the problem of carbon emissions and of climate change, and we still think we can afford that. And what do you think about the point that is made that because of this acute problem, we simply don't have the means now to go completely to renewables, so we have to bridge a gap in that respect? That's that's what some people are saying. Yeah, we, we want to, but we can't, and that's why we have to sell these additional carbon rights. Yeah, but bridging a gap is an is other language for we we delay. We don't want to take the consequences now. Mm. And also if you look at a lot of studies also in the Netherlands what you see here that our well-being currently so in terms of how it is especially in western I'm not talking about emerging market but in western Europe we're rich, we're wealthy, we're healthy and we don't want to compromise our wealth at this moment for the future. This is what we do. We don't want to give up anything. So what you're saying is we have to make a partial sacrifice, actually. We just want to continue living as is. Uh, Absolutely. Actually, we have to scale down a bit, and that's why we We don't. want to continue living as we are used to, We and the only thing we want to sacrifice is part of the future. Yeah. And that's my frustration, so it's very clear. We don't have to go into, the, into depth into it. <laughs> I can see your point. Yes. Let's go to our next point. It is data of the month. Last month, we discussed the Fed rate hike and we discussed will it be 50 basis points or not. It was not a difficult one because I think you both wanted to say 50 basis points. Yes, uh, but Maritza did it. So Yuri couldn't. <laughs> so Maritza won. Again, of course, uh, a bottle of... Uh, Water. <laughs> Water, exactly. <laughs> we have to scale down a bit. That's, yeah. that's part hey, of the sacrifices yeah, yeah. we have to make in Inflation, this context. Right? So, <laughs> so that was not a difficult one, but may, maybe very short on interest rates. Um, I think over the last month we have some, seen some developments of uh, some sort of banking statements, and I think it's also good to... The Fed will go on on this path. Uh, Yuri, what do you see? That's our expectation, yeah. We've seen in the latest communication of the Fed that they uh, have basically announced that they will do two more 50 basis point rate hikes at the next two meetings. And after that, we expect them to continue with uh, a more modest 25 basis point hike for the remainder of the year, the remaining meetings. And after that, we expect them to halt because then we believe, like we said in the beginning, that uh, growth worries will come into play and the Fed will think twice before hiking more. Yeah, and also the ECB, that's also new, Maritza, the ECB will probably also hike before summer, I think. Yeah, well, you we have heard Lagarde being a bit more hawkish. That means uh, being more 
transparent and more clear in the communication towards rate hikes. And I think the era of negative rate hikes in uh, the Eurozone is coming to an end. And the pace will probably be a bit faster. That also brings, uh, let's say, some uncertainty on how fast the Eurozone will hike rates. But I, I do want to stress that bringing the conversation to the labor market, because we have labor market tightness in the U.S., in the Eurozone, this comes on top of the rate hikes, which are already intended to reduce the demand of uh, consumers, firms. I think that we we have to be very cautious in how optimistic we are because actually everything that is being done on the policy side that is being done on the labor market, it just will lead to a bit more contraction. And if it's not well managed, you know, there could be policy mistakes. Yeah. That definitely the case. I, I was thinking there's one positive thing for uh, economic activity, and that's fiscal policy still in a lot of areas. And you can also say, is that a good idea at this moment if you're running into your limits in terms of production capacity given the labor market? Is it a wise idea to try to spend more? Because who, who will do it? And will it not only be inflationary instead of uh, leading to extra production? That that also partly depends uh, where you spend the money on, right? If yeah, you spend it on weapons. The, on weapons, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> if you spend it on the energy transition, I think that's already a better idea. Yeah, but, but again, we we have so just putting things in perspective. Energy transition requires human capital, requires yeah. workers to be able to do all the work that you mm. mentioned at first in the construction of your sister that has. So all this, you can have all the money flowing into the economy, but if you don't have the labor, then you have limitations. True. So therefore is my call for a bit of caution in how optimistic yeah. we and are. We come back to the labor market later because we are still at data of the month and we have a new challenge for next month. The exchange rate between the euro and the dollar. It's currently at 107. That means euro per dollar. If it goes up, it means strengthening of the euro. And if it goes down, it means strengthening of the dollar. It was a few weeks ago. It was 115, early February. It was last week. It was 104. That was the, the, the lowest point, And it's now 107, as I said before. So the challenge is for you, will it be higher or lower than 107? Who's first? You go ahead, Maritza. Yeah, well, uh, the thing is, I, I, I find it very tricky. Uh, if we, we look at the dollar, the dollar has two functions, let's say. One, if the U.S. economy is strong and rate hikes are coming, that means that the dollar will be also stronger. So it's simply from an economic perspective. But if things start going wrong, then you still want the dollar because the dollar is considered a safe haven. I would say that in these moments of uncertainty where we see quite some volatility, where more adjustments have to take place because central banks are all tightening, I would say that the dollar would be a bit stronger and therefore the euro a bit weaker in the coming time, suggesting that it could still go down a bit from where we are now. So you say it will go down? The dollar will go down. No, the, the, the euro dollar will go down. So it will be lower than 107. It exactly. will be lower than 107. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yuri? Uh, then, of course, I will say it will be higher than 107. And I think I have uh, a, a few good reasons for that. I found it quite surprising that Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, she made a blog post 
actually announcing that they will um, hurry up with the, with the rate hike. So they will already hike in July and they will hike again in September. That's uh, basically a given at this stage. That means that markets are now rebasing themselves and they are now expecting uh, more hawkish ECB. At the same time, we've seen some comments from Fed officials who already said that they maybe want to pause in September after the uh, two 50 basis point hikes if the economic growth uh, deteriorates. So I expect for the short term maybe that this uh, situation will continue and that markets continue to expect a more hawkish ECB compared to the Fed. And that's therefore for the near term, because we are uh, talking about one month, we will see some continued uh, strength in the euro. So that means higher than higher. one point. Yes. Well, two economists. Two different see, opinions. Two different opinions. So it will <laughs> so be we're... probably in the middle. It will yeah. be stable. Probably. probably. Let's let's see. Let's go to our, well, let's call it special topic about labor markets. There's a lot to do about labor markets from different perspective. Tightness, as we already discussed in a lot of Western economies. Discussions about migration discussions about also the link between labor and technology and also uh, to make it even broader institutional the institutional context so the, the flexibility of labor the role of unionization etc etc so there's a lot to discuss about labor markets but maybe to start with i think migration at this point in time is one of the the topics that that might be very interesting if you have very tight labor market in very rich countries you would expect that people from poorer countries would want to go there is it happening i'm looking at maritza well uh, hans life isn't so easy unfortunately because you have a lot of migration policies so the the countries that host uh, migrants have very strict conditions in which uh, migrant at least economic migrants can come to to these countries so that that doesn't happen so easily and we are seeing that in the case of ukraine there's a massive migration i think 6.4 million people have uh, moved to the different surrounding countries and the next step is how will the mainly women children, how will they integrate into the different countries? And I think that's the key point here, because if you want these people to be part of society, the labor market is where you should think of. And then I think of also where some of the most restricted sectors in terms of labor are the where you have high skilled. So the, the, the children of these uh, migrants need to be educated in the best conditions, thinking of where the potential is for the labor market. So there, there is a lot to be done, but now the labor is there, but you just have to plan and do it in the most appropriate way so that these families can also have a, yeah, work with a lot of dignity and with a lot and all the education and skills that are required. Yeah, this is really the long-term perspective from from uh, from Ukraine and and what people can can add. Yuri, yeah, I'm 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 thinking a bit about uh, what you were saying, Maritza. And I was wondering how does this affect the the population that is already in the country, so the the, the people that are already living there. If migrants come in, is that beneficial for for everyone or for the country as a whole? Or do you think there are certain parts of the population that are then being replaced or is the wage going lower and is it therefore not beneficial for all? How do you, how do you think that does 
I think that that's that, that's a very appropriate question, and and because usually you hear migrants, and then you think, okay, then is my job at risk? Yeah, and because they will probably ask for lower wages mm-hmm. because they don't have the language and uh, and other situations. But I think that this is where the long-term story really does play because we're talking mainly about the children of this population that has fled the country and they are not ready for the labor market. But we already know that we have a renewable energy story. We already know where there is scarcity in the labor market. So the ideal situation is how do you prepare this younger population to be able to fulfill all the needs that you have in the labor market Because it's a long-term story, then you can plan it, you can think about it, you can prepare it from the primary school, secondary, and then all the technical part of the education that is needed. So it, it's not something that we solve today, but children don't need to work today, but they need to be prepared for what comes in the future. So in, in that respect, it's also crucial that we really invest in our education system, right? Because we know, for instance, in the Netherlands that at the moment we're not doing so great if you compare it to most countries in the European Union. Well, I don't know if this is just a partial communication, but I have seen that the Minister of Education in the Netherlands has been very eager to make sure that the children that have from the people that have fled Ukraine, mm-hmm. that they receive a proper education, that they are integrated, that they receive extra lessons in Dutch. And there is money that has gone in for this purpose. So I think he's he's planting the seeds that are necessary for things to work out, at least at this stage. There is the goodwill and there is the money. Yeah, I agree. And maybe to add to this conversation, what has been researched quite well is that successful migration stories, so if if people come to other countries and they integrate in a successful way, that adds to economic activity and it adds also to the wealth of the country in total, so also for the incumbent. So it's not, in most cases, in the end, it's not replacing, it's adding, also well adding well-being. So the story that lower-skilled migrants pick jobs of other people is in the short term, of course, true. But in the longer term, it does not hold if countries are successful in integrating people in their economies. But we have another very short term. uh, Also, the European Commission came with a plan to let more migrants coming into Europe to help the labor shortage. Is that, from an economic perspective, a good idea? I think in the short term, if you have a shortage, it makes sense to let people in the country to help with that shortage, right? I think that's very basic uh, reason. Yeah, but can, can we can we say under which conditions, also in the short term, that will work? One perspective is it's a production factor. It's labor. It's a production factor. We bring in extra, like capital, and then we have more production. But it's not a production factor. It's also a production factor, but also people. So we have a cultural dimension to it. We have uh, education, we have integration. How does that work in general? And I think the European Commission is on its way. Yeah, it's a production factor. If we lack it, we just add it and then we solve our problems. And I think that's too simple to do it in that way. I think work dignifies. And for work to dignify, you have to be prepared to do the job of your dreams. And I think that's very important, let's say, in the sense that because I received education, I could make the choices of the job that I wanted and where I wanted and how I wanted to do it. So having the choice of a job 
that is fundamental. So you cannot impose and say, because these are migrants, because they came under these conditions, they will work in this. No, I think it's giving the population a choice. Agree. But still, the problem of shortages, yeah, so we tried the migration routes, and what you said more or less, it's a long-term perspective, it's not easy to solve it in the short run. Another very economic perspective is, so if we have more demand than supply, the price should increase. That's very simple. And in the labor market, if the price increases, so labor gets more expensive, you should get substitution from labor uh, to capital, you should get innovation. And so in the long run, it would solve itself. But at this moment in, the, in Europe, we don't see that happening. We see labor shortages, but we don't see any wage increase. And, and especially we don't see any productivity increases. But maybe, maybe uh, I'm too optimistic, but you, you need to, to, to correct me then. This is sort of a chain effect. If uh, some of the migrants that come in can work in the, what in the Netherlands is called the Kinderopfang, so mm-hmm. uh, the childcare. Child care, and this liberates some of the part-time workers and that are able to then work full-time, then you, you have, you, you sort of, the engine, the labor engine begins to move. And then you have, a, let's say, a society that is working more at potential employment with people that were already educated. Yeah. So this is more a short-term story. Yeah, but you're still adding supply. I was not adding supply, but saying we don't, we have a fixed supply, but yeah, we have but more demand. I think it also doesn't hold completely true what you're saying that uh, we don't see wage growth because I believe the most recent data does show there is some moderate some, some. wage growth. Yeah, I think it's um, inherent to the European system that it takes a bit longer before inflation translates into wage growth compared to, for instance, the US or the UK. So it also really depends upon the uh, inflation story. If we yeah. still feel that inflation is partly transitory and mostly an energy problem, then when it fades away, it will not translate into persistently higher wages. But if, in fact, inflation is more broad and it widens to other categories, then I think we will also see wage growth and then it will partly resolve itself. Yeah, Yeah. and I think the countries you're looking at is important because Germany is already having wage growth, while if you look at Spain and Italy, they will uh, be lagging in this wage growth story. So each country has its story and Germany is already showing signs of growth. Yeah. I, I want to have a, a last completely different perspective on the labor market to, to end with. Uh, you can also make the case that we just work too much, that we don't need more people and more work. We need less work, less consumption, because that's the way to relax society, to have a lower ecological footprint. So instead of thinking about how can we mobilize more people to the labor market, we can also say, yeah, let's... Let's all work part-time, produce less and be happier. Yeah, I think that's also related to where, with your frustration of the month. If we uh, use less energy, we also have to sell less carbon rights to fix the issue. So in that respect, I partly agree. I would be careful because there's a whole, there are a lot of studies on economy of leisure and how important that is also to activate the economy and let other segments of the population work. But if we're going to build golf courses like some countries do for the people who are with early retirements, that's uh, completely also devastating for the environment and for the consumption of uh, water, uh, use of grass, biodiversity. It's all about minding the environment when whatever decision we take.
You yeah. can also hurt the environment while being on retirement. Sure. <laughs> sure, sure. But it, <laughs> I just want to bring in a different perspective, but this is only for rich, wealthy countries. So let's also be clear on that, that it's really different between countries because we are only concentrating on how do we create more jobs? How do we create more productivity to get the same engine running again? And I think it also matters to, not that I have the solution, but to think about how can it be done differently? I think we have to stop here. So thank Yuri, thanks uh, Maritza, thanks listeners for listening in. Uh, don't forget to tune in next time. Subscribe to our channel, Inside Impact Investing, and hopefully you also let us know your thoughts on all these topics. Thanks. Thanks.